Leviticus 7, verses 11 through 21. This is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which he shall offer to the Lord. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the sacrifice of thanksgiving unleavened cakes with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil, or cakes of blended flour mixed with oil. Besides the cakes, as his offering, he shall offer leavened bread with the sacrifice of thanksgiving of his peace offering. And from it, he shall offer one cake from each offering as a heave offering to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who sprinkles the blood of the peace offering. The flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering for thanksgiving shall be eaten the same day it is offered. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow or a voluntary offering, it shall be eaten the same day that he offers his sacrifice. But on the next day, the remainder of it also may be eaten. The remainder of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day must be burned with fire. And if any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering is eaten at all on the third day, it shall not be accepted, nor shall it be imputed to him. It shall be an abomination to him who offers it, and the person who eats of it shall bear guilt. The flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten. It shall be burned with fire. And as for the clean flesh, all who are cleaned clean may eat of it. But the person who eats the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offering that belongs to the Lord, while he is unclean, that person shall be cut off from his people. Moreover, the person who touches any unclean thing such as human uncleanness, an unclean animal, or any abominable unclean thing, and he who eats the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offering that belongs to the Lord, that person shall be cut off from his people. Let's pray. O Heavenly Father God, we do thank you that you gather your people together this day. We thank you that you, you come and you speak and you instruct your bride. Father, we do pray that you would, you would help us this day to understand the, the peace offering and, and the, the goodness in it, as well as the severity, the, the judgments that accompany it. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand greater your, your kindnesses through it. Father, we do pray that you would help us to see these things more rightly. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would you would bless and guide Mr. Horn as he instructs us, as he exposits your word. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would you would teach us, that you would be washing us, that you would be cleansing our thinking, that you would help us to be fearing and seeing you more rightly. We do pray, O oh Lord, that you would bless bless this time now. We do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we've been going through Leviticus, the first five chapters were about the, the various offerings, the, the burn offering, which is a picture of substitutionary atonement, the grain offering, which is a picture of the word of God being given to his priests, 
the word of God being given to those who in the new covenant are priests and kings appointed by God, those who believe, offering this picture of justification and the, the trespass offering, the picture of sanctification. And then starting in chapter 6, the perspective changes. Instead of talking about the offering itself, God started to talk about how the priests were to deal with the offerings what they received for making the offerings, the blessings that they received for being involved with the offerings. And so the laws started to be related to the priest's perspective rather than the perspective of the person making the offering. But in this, pers- in this passage, it goes to the perspective of the, the one making the again. And it's in the switching of the, the subject, starting in verse 8 of chapter 6, I think I even said, or I said before, that it's coming from the priest's perspective, but I think, it, I think it's slightly different than that. I think a better way to explain the first five chapters and the first part of the sixth chapter is its focuses on Christ. Its focuses on his sacrifice. It's focused on him being the peace offering, him being the, the grain offering, him being the burn offering. And now it starts to focus on how people interact with it which is why it talks about the priests for the burn offering and for the, the sin offering. But now as we go to the trespass offering, the focus is really on the people making the offering again. And so <coughs> all those blood sacrifices that are pointing to Christ, I think at first it was focusing on that, and then it starts to focus on the response of the people who receive Christ, the response of the people for whom Christ died, those who believe in him, those who put their faith and trust in him. So starting in chapter 6, the perspective changes to the response to the sacrifice rather than the sacrifice itself. (coughs) Including what, in this passage, a lot of it is... And so the rules, the perspective is different. And here you see that the rules for the trespass offering are different depending on the reason that you make the offering. When the peace offering was first described, God just said that offering needs to be killed. It needs to be killed at the door of the tabernacle. The picture is that, that having access to God produces real blessings in this life. And so you killed the animal between the altar burnt offering and the, the door of the tabernacle. <laughs> unlike the burnt offering where it was the bullock was killed there, but the members of the flock, the sheep or the or the goats, need to turn that down some. Too much reverberation. The 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 sheep and the goats, that that would be uh yeah, they were killed on the north side of the altar burnt offering. But when it's a peace offering, it's always killed at the door of the tabernacle. And then they had to burn the inward parts, that picture of when they burn the kidney and they burn part of the liver and the fat that surrounds the entails, entrails. It's this picture of, of cleansing from the inward parts, cleansing the, the parts that are associated with sin. And then we get to, right, it was, it was called the peace offering there. It's a derivative of the word shalom, the Hebrew word for peace. And so this is definitely a peace offering. And so it's clear that even when it was given in chapter 3, that it was about having peace with God, peace between God and men. 
that that is produced by the blood of Jesus Christ. It separates those who believe in him from the judgment of hell, which is why they had to sprinkle the blood in a circle around the altar burnt offering. But in this passage, we find out that there's other things that are associated with that peace with God. Even the reason for giving the peace offering. You give the peace offering because you're thankful towards God. That's about recognizing who God is, recognizing what God did for you. Paying a vow if you make a deal with God and you say that if you do this, God, I will do this. It's about paying that vow. And it's about a voluntary offering, which we'll talk more about the voluntary offering because it's, it's not as voluntary as it sounds. But this is all demonstrating what, what a peace offering looks like. It demonstrates what being at peace with God looks like. It's, it produces certain things from man's perspective. So with that, let's go to verses 11 through 14. This is the law, the sacrifice of peace offerings, which he shall offer to the Lord. If he offers it for thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the sacrifice of thanksgiving unleavened cakes mixed with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil, or cakes of blended flour mixed with oil. Besides the cakes, as his offering, he shall offer leavened bread with the sacrifice of thanksgiving of his peace offerings. And from it he shall offer one cake from each offering as a heave offering to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who sprinkles the blood of the peace offering. So it starts with this is the law. These are the commandments given to the people who are going to make an offering. That Remember, just like with Moses, when Moses was not allowed into the promised land because he was commanded to speak to the rock and instead he struck the rock. So God said, you cannot go into the promised land. God is very serious about the physical pictures that he put in place because these physical pictures have an underlying spiritual reality that if you distort the picture, you can't understand the spiritual reality. And so these these pictures of of the bread that has to be offered with the Thanksgiving offering, these are serious pictures. These, These are what make us be able to understand the peace offering and the realities that it's pointing to. So God gave specific laws related to the peace offering so that we could understand what he's trying to teach us of what it means to be at peace with God, what it means to have thanksgiving towards God, what it means to pay a vow, what it means to to do a voluntary offering. So this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings. These are the things that must be followed for the offering to be acceptable to God. It's always easy to think that we can just give thanks however we want and that will be acceptable to God. That's not what God says. God says it requires you to do it in ways that he wants for it to be pleasing to him. That's what it means to be a servant. That's what it means to be a slave. You do what your master wants. That's what it means to have Jesus as Lord, is you do what he wants. We don't just go. He has to accept whatever we choose to give him. He gets to choose what is acceptable to him. He gets to define how we are supposed to act, what we are supposed to do. So as his servants, we have the responsibility to give him what he wants. He has no obligation to accept it. We have the obligation to give it. So when we think of what it looks like to have peace with God, we should remember that we have an obligation to do the spiritual realities that they had an obligation to do the physical pictures of the physical pictures of offering the bread. We have to have an obligation to do the spiritual things that are being pointed to by that. 
So the peace offerings which he shall offer to the Lord. Desiring to offer is not enough. You have to offer it to the Lord. You have to offer it the way he commands. That's the only way it's an acceptable offering to God. So then he says the first case for a peace offering, if he offers it for thanksgiving. So there's basically two categories of peace offerings that are covered in this passage. The first is you offer it for thanksgiving. Peace offerings are because of a sense of gratitude, of thankfulness toward God. And so this would be the picture of a celebration. For whatever you do, when you want to celebrate, like with a wedding feast, that would be a peace offering where you're just coming before God and saying, this is something to celebrate. We're thankful for what you're doing. We're thankful towards you. Now, the other category is vows and voluntary offerings, which are more offerings that you have an obligation to give rather than just being overwhelmed with thanksgiving. This is when you're just, you're just thankful towards God for what he has done for you. So if you're offering it for thanksgiving, then you have to offer, as opposed to the other cases where there wasn't the same obligation. But if you're going to offer it with thanksgiving, you have to give with the sacrifice of thanksgiving, if it's a peace offering, to be accepted by God, representing that you're thankful towards God, you have to associate that with bread. You have to bring certain kinds of bread with the offering for it to be acceptable to God. (coughs) So with the sacrifice of, of thanksgiving, you have to offer with bread, which we've seen before. With, at the consecration of Aaron, you see three of the four types of bread here in Exodus 29, 1 through 3. And this is what you shall do to them to hallow them for ministering to me as priest. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers anointed with oil. You shall make them of wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket with the bowl and with the two rams. So they're in a different order here than they were there, but I think it's the same three types of bread. That for the priests to be consecrated, they had to offer the bread in addition to the the (coughs) burnt offering and the sin offerings. They had to offer bread because they're set aside to minister to the word of God or minister the word of God. And so thanksgiving offerings are only acceptable if they're associated with the word of God, if they're associated with the grain offering. The thanksgiving offerings aren't acceptable because you go, I'm thankful for God without understanding what God has said, without understanding why you should be thankful towards him for what he has done. So I think throughout, when you see the grain offering, it's always a picture of the word of God where Jesus Christ said, I am the bread of life. That's the picture over and over again in these offerings. So when we see these three, two, these three different types of bread, or four in this case, we should recognize this has to do with what, how are you supposed to treat the word of God. And so the first one is unleavened cakes mixed with oil. So that would be very similar to the bread, as I've said before, because God <laughs> repeats these things multiple times, which means we should pay attention to them. It would be like the bread that we have for the Lord's Supper on Sunday where you take the flour, you mix it with oil, you bake it. So it's not like a, <coughs> you know, this isn't a grain offering. The, the grain offering from chapter 2 of Leviticus, you actually had to put frankincense on it. You had to burn a memorial. This doesn't get any memorial burnt. This doesn't get any of those because this isn't a grain offering, but this is an offering that must be associated with the peace offering. 
So again, I think this is a picture of the word of God prepared with the help of the Holy Spirit, the oil, for people to consume like a sermon, like a, a book, like, like something where somebody sat down and they've thought about what they're going to say, they've deliberated over it, and this is a way that God's people get fed. And so when we have thanksgiving, you can't say, I'm thankful towards God, and you never listen to the preaching of his word. You shouldn't think you're thankful towards God. You're thankful towards some image you have of God, some idea you have of God, without having enough knowledge to be thankful towards God. You actually have to have knowledge to be thankful towards God. And then the next one is unleavened wafers anointed with oil. And that word, the term translated wafer, it comes from the Hebrew word for spit. So this is considered to be a very thin wafer that would have been probably fried or baked. And then after it was cooked, oil would be put on it. So the bread itself doesn't have oil in it. It only has the oil put on it. So I think this is the picture of of just the Word of God, where the Holy Spirit works on the Word of God to apply it to your heart. You remember the Word, right? David said, hide the Word in your heart so that you do not sin against Him, against God. And so it's that picture where you have the Word and the God at the appropriate time brings it forth, shows you through His Spirit how it applies in that situation, And so that's the picture. You actually have to be active with the word of God. You have to be handling the word of God in order for the Thanksgiving offering to be acceptable to God. Now, in the New King James, it says or. I could not find another translation that says or. I have no idea why the New King James translated it or. I don't think that's correct. The King James translates it and. I think that's correct. I'm not sure why they would do it when in other places with the same words back in in Exodus, they translated and, and so it seems to me that they're just very arbitrary in their translation. And so I think they had to bring all, all three of these kinds of breads, or four again, because there's another one that's leavened, but they had to bring multiple cakes of each one of these. It's not just one either, because one of them would be given to the priests, but other ones would be given to the, to the people who eat the peace offering. So according to Gill, that you actually had to bring 10. I don't know. He comes up with things that sometimes are correct, but sometimes are, I mean, it's a Jew- Jewish tradition rather than, than from the word of God. But what's clear from the word of God is that you have to bring multiple of each. And so then the last kind is cakes of blended flour mixed with oil. Again, a different words here that's used only three times in the Old Testament. And there's a disagreement about what it means. Some, mean, some translations take it that say that it was stirred more vigorously than the other one, which doesn't make much sense to me. I think that it's, again, the King James has it as fried, and I think that is probably the right idea, is that while the other ones would be baked, this you actually put it into a pan with oil and fry it so it has more oil in it, which is why it's saying that it's blended. Because this isn't multiple types of flour. This is more that, it's, that it has more oil in it than the other ones. And it's also usually thought to be that it was cooked more hastily. So I do think it matches where, where God says to consecrate the high priest in, in Exodus. So again, I think this is a picture of dealing with the word of God where you think about what it means. You think about applying it through the power of the Holy Spirit 
but it's not the same preparation as a sermon. I think it's more like family devotions is that picture. But all of this is, in order for you to have a Thanksgiving offering, you have to be dealing with the Word of God. That if you just say, well, I'm thankful towards God, but have no idea what He says, it's not really Thanksgiving towards God. It's just Thanksgiving towards your idea of God, rather than Thanksgiving towards the true God, the Creator of all. And so then in addition to those cakes, so those three cakes were required for the other offerings, like when a priest is consecrated. But here there's another part of that offering that's different. As is offering to show true thanksgiving towards God, it's not just dealing with his word, it's not just understanding his word, but you also have to offer leavened bread. And so the other three types of bread were unleavened, which from before, you know, it represents the word of God, how you're not supposed to mix anything into it. Sin so often distorts what the meaning of the word of God is. That's what we see, right, is that sin blinds you to what God's word says. And so the picture here is it can't have leaven in it. It can't have anything mixed with it. It's just Jesus Christ, the bread of life, and the, the oil of the Holy Spirit. That's the picture of those other kinds of bread. So what's the picture of the leavened bread? Because the leavened bread is clearly a picture of something else. And leaven represents expansion. So I think it represents that to be thankful towards God, it requires more than just handling God's word. It requires more than just the work of the Spirit. Think of David in Psalm 35, 18. I will give you thanks in the great assembly. I will praise you among many people. After he cried out to God saying, deliver me from my enemies... His then response is, I will praise you among many people. When we think we're thankful towards God, if we're not speaking of God's word to other people, if we're not declaring the goodness of God to other people, we shouldn't think that we're, that we're thankful towards God, that it is about it expanding. It's about the word going forth. Israel, it says in Isaiah, that Israel was judged because they just kept God's word to themselves and they didn't, they didn't spread it out to the nations around them. And so a, a peace offering is only acceptable to God if it's spreading out, if it's going outside of, of your group, if it's going outside of the people that you want to talk to. We have an obligation not just to express our thankfulness towards those people who we're with, the people in church, the people we know. We have an obligation to express our thankfulness toward God to the people around, to the people outside, to the people who reject God. Remember the duty of the church. It says in Isaiah eleven nine, They shall not hurt nor destroy in my, all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. When we're thankful towards God, we are furthering that. We are declaring the goodness of God. We're declaring the knowledge of the glory of God. And so if all we do when we're thankful towards God is just keep it among people who accept God, people who say the right words, rather than actually dealing with the people who say they hate God, then we're failing to be thankful the way we should. It's not just the three unleavened breads. You also have to have the leavened bread. It is supposed to be expanding. The knowledge of God, the the knowledge of the blessings of God, the knowledge of the word of God. We have an active duty to cause that to be spread through the world. And we shouldn't think that if we just keep our mouth shut and just say, oh, we're praise God to the people who agree with us, that somehow we're fulfilling being thankful towards God. If we're truly thankful towards God, we say it to more than just the people around us. 
more than just the people that agree with us. So they have to offer leavened bread with the sacrifice of thanksgiving of his peace offering. This is required for the sacrifice of thanksgiving to be acceptable. Remember, it's so easy to come to church and say you're thankful toward God. But when you go out to your workplace, do you say you're thankful towards God? When something goes well, do you say you're thankful towards God, even when the people around you reject God? That's the picture. That's the obligation. Right now, we're in a nation that, that hates God, right? Romans 1 says very clearly, we do not want to retain God in our knowledge. That's why he's turned us over to sodomy. That's why he's turned us over to all these evil things because the church is not being the light that it should be. And how we treat thankfulness has a lot to do with whether we're the light that we're supposed to be. If all we do is we're thankful towards God when we're by ourselves, then of course there's no light in the world. Of course it's just filled with darkness. And we shouldn't think our our praises of God, our thanksgiving towards God are acceptable. If we're not willing to say it to people who disagree, we shouldn't think that our accept that our offerings are accepted by God. It's very clear if you look at our country, we know they're not. And we should ask ourselves, how much do we say praise God when we're in the midst of unbelievers? Or do we only do it when we're in the midst of people that agree with us? So then from those four different types of bread, shall offer one cake from each offering. So you have the multiple offerings, and then they were to bring multiple of each one of those, and so that the people who ate the peace offering would have some. But for the priests, they were to take one of each of the four types of bread. One cake of it. Because they were supposed to give each type to the priest who did the sacrifice. Again, the word of God is the priests are the picture of believers, right? That's what the New Testament says. There were priests and kings in Revelation 1. And so the picture here is that even though there might be somebody who's making an offering that's dealing with the word, the ones that are truly blessed by it are those who believe, those who, who have faith, those who are priests on the order of Melchizedek. And so they offer one cake from each offering as a heave offering to the Lord. That word translated heave offering has been used before. It was used with the offerings of gold, silver, and bronze, the other things that were needed in the building of the tabernacle. There was just translated offering. The picture here is not that you have to lift it over your head, but there is the offering of the thigh that the priests received that was lifted over the head, so they call it a heave offering. But, but there's no requirement that you lift it over your head, that you heave it. The issue is just that it's an offering. So what they were supposed to do here is the priests would receive some of each of the kinds of bread to be reminded of how they needed to be dealing with the word of God. <coughs> so the bread is a picture of the word of God. The fruit of the word of God is what the true priests of God receive when they have thanksgiving towards God. Right? This is what it says in Hebrews five fourteen. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. The person that takes God's word, puts it into practice, they receive the blessing of the word of God. They receive the understanding of the word of God. They receive those four types of bread that God gives or that God requires for his offering. So it shall belong to the priest. The priest is to gain from it as well. It becomes his possession. But it's a very specific priest. It's the one who sprinkles the blood of the peace offering. 
God is explicit about why the priest receives part of the bread. Right? He had to cut the animal. He had to take the entrails out. Or they cut the animal, but he had to take the entrails out. He had to wash the entrails. He had to put them on the, the fire that was on the burnt offering. He had to burn that up. He had to make sure that it was kept burning so that all of it would be burned up. But God doesn't say that's why he gets it. He also had to take the blood that was caught from the, from the slaughtering the animal and he had to sprinkle it in a circle around the altar of burnt offering. And that's what he receives the bread for. Because he's the one that's declaring the separation from the judgment that comes by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so as that, that peace offering, it's, it's that separation, that, that separation from the picture of hell. That's why the priest gets the, the offering. We should remember that as we talk about things, that it is because of the exaltation of Christ is why God blesses us with a greater understanding of his word and greater knowledge of his word. That's what's to drive true righteous thanksgiving. For the peace that we have with God is to remember that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ made it possible to be reconciled to the Father. Verses 15 through 18. The flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering for thanksgiving shall be eaten the same day it is offered. He shall not leave any of it until morning. But if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow or a voluntary offering, it shall be eaten the same day that he offers his sacrifice. But on the next day, the remainder of it also may be eaten. The remainder of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day must be burned with fire. And if any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering is eaten at all on the third day, it shall not be accepted, nor shall it be imputed to him. It shall be an abomination to him who offers it, and the person who eats of it shall bear guilt. So the flesh, the flesh that comes, not the part that was burned up, but now God's going to tell you what to do with the flesh, the the picture of blessing of the sacrifice of peace. It's to be associated with the word of God and the picture of the Holy Spirit for it to be acceptable in the sight of God. But then God also establishes very specific rules related to the receiving of the blessing of peace. The peace offering is a picture of the blessing that God gives to people who are following in his ways. For Israel, it was physical. For the church, it was spirit, it's spiritual, even though there's real physical aspects of that blessing. For instance, in Mark 10, 29 and 30, Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. God says there are physical blessings here. There are real blessings here that come from following God. But without eternal life, it doesn't mean anything. It's the eternal life that allows you to go through the persecutions. So we shouldn't say that there's just spiritual blessings. But in the new covenant, the spiritual blessings are what the focus is to be. So the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering. So they take out the parts that are burned and then they would be given back. The rest of it would be given back to the person making the offering. He gave thanksgiving. It was a peace offering with thanksgiving towards God. And again, the rules are different if it's not a thanksgiving offering. 
If it's a Thanksgiving offering, it shall be eaten in the same day it's offered. So think about what that means. You know, if you sacrifice a bullock, and there may have been smaller now, but if you sacrificed a bullock now, you would expect it to have roughly 400 pounds of meat. 400 pounds of meat is a lot of meat. You figure that the average person eats a half pound. So that means you have to have 800 people to eat it. So the peace offering of Thanksgiving is not just that you go, oh, let's, let's have a peace offering. And, and you can just do it arbitrarily because it needs to be eaten that day. So God is saying that to be thankful towards him, you have to get a lot of other people involved. It's not just that you just go, oh, I'm thankful towards God, so I'll go make a sacrifice. You're thankful towards God, so a lot of people receive a blessing from that sacrifice. And obviously, if it was ram, if it was a a sheep, if it was a a goat, it would be smaller, considerably smaller. But in all of them, so that it's all eaten in that first day, it requires real arrangement. It requires real planning. Thanksgiving towards God is not just some arbitrary thing. It's requiring real planning to, to be prepared to testify to those around you that you're thankful towards God. And so he tells them, you have to eat it in the day that it's offered. He shall not leave any of it. None of it is to remain. For the other peace offerings, it tells you explicitly, if any remains, burn it. But here he just says, let none of it remain, which doesn't necessarily mean you shouldn't burn it. But what it does mean is you're really supposed to plan to make sure there's none left. You're really supposed to have that plan. You're really supposed to make sure that you're going to be blessing to enough people so that all of the meat is consumed, all of the animal is consumed. This is about when you make a peace offering for Thanksgiving, it's about a very public declaration that you're thankful towards God. So he shall not leave any of it till morning. Now it said it the same day it was offered, and we know biblically there's no question at the end of the day is sunset. And so... He is giving you some extra time to get rid of it, uh, some extra time to eat it. He gives you till dawn to eat it. And so if you kill it at noon and your feasting goes on until midnight, that's fine. Just make sure that it's eaten. And so then, but, so this is drawing a contrast with the other reasons for peace offering. Because there's peace offering for Thanksgiving and a peace offering for vows vows and voluntary offerings. So those have different rules. Those you can take longer to eat. If you're doing a Thanksgiving offering, you're supposed to plan to make sure that it would all be eaten. And so that's your obligation. To pay a vow, it's not that you've planned it necessarily, although you've chosen the time to make the vow, but you don't have to you don't have the requirement because you have an obligation to God, you don't have the same requirement to make sure that it all gets consumed. So if his sacrifice of his offering is a vow. So a vow, it's important to understand what a vow is. A vow is when you, it's a, it's a two-party covenant. right? An oath is a three-party covenant. It's between you and another person in the sight of God. So the three parties are the two parties to the covenant, and the third party is God. For a vow, it's a two-party covenant. It's you making a deal with God. It's you making an agreement with God. So, you know, there's, there's plenty of vows in the Old Testament. If you do this, God, I will do that. And so that would, be, that would be a vow. And yes, in the New Covenant, it is 
God says that people will make vows to God in the new covenant. So it's not like it's, it's not legitimate in the new covenant. It's still legitimate in the new covenant. Even like David in Psalm 35, if you deliver me from your enemy or from my enemies, I will speak of it in the great congregation. I will make sure many people know about it. That would be a vow. But frequently the vows would be the offering. It would be an, an animal as a peace offering to describe God blesses you. You cry out to God for a blessing in a specific way. He blesses you in that specific way. So you offer a peace offering to say, I'm thankful towards God. I, God did what he said. God is sovereign over all things. He's in control of all things. So you sacrifice the peace offering. And then the other one is a voluntary offering. And when you read voluntary offering, you immediately go, you just chose to do it. But I don't think that's really the picture of, of how the word is used. It doesn't mean that you chose to do it. It's that you felt an obligation to do it. For instance, the first time it's used is in Exodus 36.3. And they received from Moses all the offering which the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service of the sanctuary. So they continued to bring him free will offerings every morning. Well, Moses said, we need gold, silver, acacia wood. We need bronze. We need... And he listed all the things that were needed. We need these jewels. We need all this. And then people would go, well, I have this diamond. I should give it. And that's a free will offering. You see an obligation and you fulfill that obligation. So when it says a voluntary offering, we can just think that it comes out of our own spirit. But that's not really the picture of voluntary offerings. The voluntary offerings, the picture of them is you see something that needs to be done and you step up and you do it. That would be the voluntary offering. And that's a peace offering with God. That is what those who trust in God, those who believe in God, that's what they do. It's important to recognize that because Jesus Christ said that's what we get judged for is do you make voluntary offerings? And I'll come back to that. But it's really important to recognize when you see an obligation, if you just walk by and don't do anything, that's, that's saying you don't have peace with God. You know, if somebody comes to you and says they're hungry and you say, I'll pray for you, be warmed and filled, right? That's not making the voluntary offering. The voluntary offering is to go, I have food, here, eat. And we should just recognize how serious that is in the eyes of God. So voluntary offerings is what believers do. So it's kind of, the, it's similar to a vow, and in this passage it's treated the same way. Because... Both of them are an obligation before God. The one you have an obligation because you made a deal with God. The other one you have an obligation because you see a need and you go, God has provided me with the things that I, the things that I need in order to fulfill this need. So therefore, I have an obligation to do a free will offering. So and, it's, and the word comes from spontaneity. So the idea more is you see a need and you respond. That would be the picture of the free will offering. So if it's a vow or a free will offering, it shall be eaten the same day. So it still says it needs to be eaten the same day. If we're thankful to God, we're supposed to be thankful for the blessings of each day. They don't have the same obligation, though, to make sure that it's eaten. For instance, if you think about, so say you went up to a feast and you see there's a lot of people that don't have meat. So you go, I have a bullock, I'll I'll let them eat it. 
I'll let them sacrifice as a peace offering, right? That would be the picture of a voluntary offering. Well, you didn't gather 800 people to eat it, and so some of it may be left over, so God's a lot less strict with it because it's out of the moment that you're saying this is a need that needs to be fulfilled, so I'll fulfill the need. So they don't have the same obligation to have everything set up so that all of it would be consumed. So it shall be eaten the same day that he offers the sacrifice. It is to be eaten the same day, but on the next day, so the other one it was, you could go till morning. On this one, it goes into the next day. So on the next day, it's still acceptable to eat of it. So the remainder of it also may be eaten. So God gives you another whole day to eat it. If it's, if it's to pay a vow or if it's because of a voluntary offering. But on the third day, right, the remainder of the flesh of the sacrifice, anything that's still left over on the third day, must be burned with fire. And obviously, whenever you see three days in the Old Testament, it should remind you of the crucifixion and the resurrection. And since Christ is the peace offering, that even ties the connection more strongly together here than it does for a lot of other, a lot of other places where you see three days. But the picture is, is that the peace offering comes not by Christ's resurrection, but by Christ dying in our place. That's why we have peace with God. So I think it's, it's tying to that, that that you have to be pointing to his sacrifice in order to have life in order to be at peace with God, in order to have that blood dripped around the altar burnt offering so that you don't, you don't go to hell, you don't have that judgment upon you. So the peace that we have with God, you can't separate from the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made. So on the third day must be burned with fire, and if any is left over, if all the flesh was not eaten, if any is left over on the third day, of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering. So of the animal that was sacrificed, of any of it's left over, and it's eaten at all on the third day. So if any of it is eaten, any of it at all, even the smallest bite of it, it shall not be accepted. And that doesn't mean that bite shall not be accepted, but the whole peace offering shall not be accepted. If you're not diligent to make sure that, again, God is very serious about the pictures that he draws, and he's drawing this picture that by the third day you are not allowed to eat of it. And so the, the picture is, if you violate that, he goes, the whole peace offering, the thanksgiving offering, that's all unacceptable to God. It shall not be accepted, nor shall it be imputed to him. That idea of imputing it to him, right, is you make a vow where you say, I'm going to, God, if you do this, I'll offer a sheep. You come and offer a sheep and somebody eats it on the third day. God still says, you still, you haven't paid your vow. You still owe the sheep. You're, it wasn't credited to you that you fulfilled your part of the bargain. But the language is even stronger. It shall be an abomination to him who offers it. So the person who made the offering has a responsibility to make sure that it's all eaten or destroyed. You know, it can't be like, hey, take some home and eat it tomorrow and then they keep it and eat it the third day, and you don't even know about it, it's still your obligation. It is still an abomination before God that you did because you didn't make sure it was all destroyed. Again, God is very serious about these pictures. 
if you do not, you have a responsibility, if you made the sacrifice, to make sure that none of it is taken away and kept and eaten on the third day. So it's the person who made the offering, it's an abomination to him. I mean, that God is looking at it as an abomination to him. And then the person who eats of it, he'll also bear the guilt. It's still, it's not one of them alone. God can hold both parties guilty. And in this case, he holds both parties guilty. The one that ate it when they shouldn't eat it, and the one that offered it and didn't make sure it was destroyed. Again, that's how serious God is taking this. Verses 19 and 21. The flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten. It shall be burned with fire. And as for the clean flesh, all who are clean may eat of it. But the person who eats the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offering that belongs to the Lord, while he is unclean, that person shall be cut off from his people. Moreover, the person who touches any unclean thing, such as human uncleanness, an unclean animal, or any abominable unclean thing, and who eats the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offering that belongs to the Lord, that person shall be cut off from his people. So again, this is very serious. God is telling them how to deal with the flesh. And he's not saying it doesn't matter. He's saying the pictures really matter. The pictures are very serious. So if you have flesh, you have the meat of the animal and it touches any unclean thing. So this is some portion of it. Drops in the blood that was spilled of an animal or, or touches something that's dead. This makes it unclean. And if it's unclean, you're not allowed to eat it. If it, if it somehow becomes unclean. And the laws related to the uncleanness and the cleanness haven't been given at this point. But yet it's clear back even from Noah that they knew what was clean and what was unclean in terms of animals. But God is going to give a lot of instruction on what is clean and unclean. But here he just says, the point is, you, if it's thanksgiving and it's perverted by the picture of sin, that it's not thankful towards God, that it should be destroyed. It's not thanksgiving towards God if it's been, if it's been twisted by sin. It shall not be eaten. When something appears to be the fruit of righteousness, but it's really the fruit of sin, it's not to be eaten. It's not to be saying, oh, God's blessing this. It's not blessing if, it does, if it's associated with sin. God does not find it pleasing. He says, don't, don't give me thanks for sin. Instead, it should be burned with fire. It's a picture of that judgment, the judgment of being burned with fire. And I do think this is related to the picture in 1 Corinthians 3. 12 and 13, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. We can think we're thankful towards things that are not related to what God says are holy and just, and in that day of judgment, those will be burned up. Or we can think, oh, we were doing such great work for God, and God will turn around and go, that should have just been destroyed. That should have just been burned up because it was associated with unholy things. The only things that are thankful towards thanksgiving towards God that God approves of are those things that are in line with his law, those things that are in line with his commandments. And so as for the clean flesh, for the flesh that remains, the flesh that was not defiled by uncleanness, all who are clean may eat of it. 
So only those who are ceremonially clean may eat of it. Now, obviously, this is a picture of being spiritually clean. The blessings of being at peace with God can only be in place if you're turning from your sin, if you're repenting, if you're cleansing yourself of sin through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's very easy to assign what you see as good things in life to God. But God blesses those who obey. Read Deuteronomy 28. God blesses those who obey his commandments that walk in his ways instead of the way of the world. Sin steals the sense of being at peace with God. And you can believe you're at peace with God. You can think you're at peace with God. But you're not at peace with God. You are not partaking of the blessings of peace with God if you're not dealing with sin in your life. You're not. It's that simple. You don't partake of the picture of the blessing. You don't partake of the spiritual blessings unless you're actually dealing with sin in your life. So, but the person who eats it, and understand that this is, God is very serious about the judgment. The person who eats the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offering, if you're partaking of the blessings of the Lord and enjoying the blessings of peace with God, that belongs to the Lord. It's the Lord's peace offering. It's what's given to God. He's the one who gets to dispense it as he sees fit. If you eat it while you are unclean, if you're a partaker of the peace offering, that's saying that you're with the people of God, saying that you're right with God, saying that you've been born again, saying that you have a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone, and yet you do have a heart of stone, God judges it very severely. He says that person shall be cut off from his people. Now, some people say this is exile, but if you look at the passages, it's hard to see it as exile. It's a capital offense. That's how serious God takes it. The first time that that word's ever used, it's talking about being cut off. It's in relations to Noah's flood. In Genesis 9:11, thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off. That's what he did. He cut off all flesh by the waters of the flood. Never again there shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. That's the term God uses to cut them off. It's used in parallel passages where it says in one passage that you cut them off related to the Sabbath. In another passage, for the same commandment, it says they are put to death. When you read this, you should be thinking put to death, not just put outside the camp. Now, obviously, in the church, we don't put anybody to death, but we excommunicate. And so the picture here is you cut them off, you separate them. They are dead as far as the church is concerned. How often do we go, oh, yeah, there's sin. They, they have these sin in there, but we'll leave them in the church. Well, that's the opposite of the picture of the peace offering. It's the opposite of they're not supposed to partake of the, of the blessings of God, deceiving themselves that they're right with God when the church knows they're in sin. If you know you're in sin, don't lie to yourself. You're not at peace with God. And if the church knows about it because the sin by God's mercy has been revealed, the church has to do something about it. Otherwise, it's not obeying God. To let people just remain in the church and to be at the same time to be wallowing in their sin. That is a serious sin against them. The peace offering, the blessings of being at peace with God are not for those who lie about being Christ. It's for those who are Christ. You know, and I think it's a picture of the third commandment. Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. 
the person who says, look at how I'm being blessed by God about all these things. But they're really taking the name of God in vain because they, they haven't believed in Christ. They haven't been separated from the altar burnt offering by the sacrifice of Christ. God says he won't hold them guiltless. He will judge them for it. And so we're supposed to not allow people to partake of the blessings of being part of the people of God unless they actually have a credible profession, unless they actually are turning from sin. And it says, moreover, the person who touches any unclean thing. So this is the person who is in contact when we are defiled by sin, even when it's just touching it, when we're not participating in it ourselves. We should expect it to have a real effect on the walk with the Lord. Consider Lot in 2 Peter 2.7. And delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. That's the picture of the person who shouldn't be saying, Oh, I'm being blessed by God. When all they're really doing is, is fighting against the filthy conduct of the wicked all the time. When they're tormented day by day. That's, that's not the picture of being blessed by God. When you're, when you're walking close to the unholy things so that you get the comfort. And then you say, oh look, I'm blessed by God. God's saying, no, those people, they're not supposed to be partaking of the holy things. And obviously this is a picture of the Lord's Supper. This is why we examine ourselves in the Lord's Supper is because you're not to partake of the holy things. You're not supposed to partake of this picture of being at peace with God when you're unholy, when you're in sin, when you're not cleansing yourself like Jesus Christ when he established it and washed the disciples' feet. It's that picture of dealing with the sin in your life before you touch holy things. And then he gives examples such as human uncleanness, it's because we can be unclean because of the filth that people do because of our out of what's even coming out of our ourselves that that makes you unclean don't think you can celebrate the peace that you have with him until you deal with your sin an unclean animal this would be an unclean person or the picture excuse me the picture of an unclean animal which is the the picture of what it means to to not be following god not be following after the things of god or any abominable, unclean thing, someone who's defiling themselves with the things of the world. All of them shouldn't be partaking of the blessings of, the, of peace with God when they don't have evidence that they're at peace with God. And so if you've done any of that, and it, then you eat the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offering, if you're defiled and you still consume the peace offering, it's an abomination to God. It belongs to God. The blessings are from Him. And... When you partake of the blessings, you're supposed to partake of them knowing who God is, knowing what he expects, dealing with the sin in your life, and not to pretend like they're a blessing from him, that you're thankful towards him when you're really is associated with your sin. And again, that person shall be cut off from his people. God is saying this very seriously. He's taking it. He's not just saying, oh, this is a minor thing. He's saying it's worthy of death. It's worthy of death to blaspheme the name of God, to say that what is blessings or what is cursings from God is really blessings. It's not blessings unless you're following God. It's not blessings unless he's given you, he's broken the power of sin in your life. That's when you can say, God is blessing me. Let me give you some applications. First is when you make your offerings whether it's an offering of thanksgiving, an offering of praise, offerings of service, 
We're always supposed to start with considering what God wants, what he requires for the offering to be acceptable. Or your focus ends up always being what you want to give. You know, for instance, we're commanded to be giving thanks always in Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus. But if you only give thanks when things are going well, according to your judgment, you shouldn't think that offering is acceptable to God because you have to give thanks for all things. You know, James 1 says, when you count it all joy when you fall into diverse trials, knowing this, that the testing of your faith produces patience and let patience have a perfect work. The picture is, is that we have to be thankful when things are going right according to God's eyes, even when they're wrong according to our eyes. And if what we say is, well, we're only going to give thanks when we're happy with what God does, it's an attempt to manipulate God, and we shouldn't think God is going to find that pleasing. It's no longer about submitting to the omniscient God who knows all things and trusting that he's wiser than we are. It's about trying to get God to do what we want him to do. It's important whenever we think about the offerings we make to God, whether it's the praises of our lips, whether it's the service, you can't just go, I'm going to go do what I want. You have to go, what does God want me to do? Next application is we should not think just because we say thank you, Lord, that those praises are acceptable to God. It must be accomplished. It must be accompanied by knowledge. If you have no interest in what God expects, if you have no interest in what he commands and what he instructs, don't think you have peace with God. Don't think that when you say thank you, Lord, that he's hearing that and going, oh, yeah, there's somebody praising me. If you don't care about who he is, if you don't care about what he says is righteous, if you don't care about what he says is holy and just and good, then don't think your, your statement that you're thanking God, that somehow God's going, oh, look, he's thankful towards me. No, you're not. If you don't want to know what he says, you are not thankful towards God. All tra- true thanksgiving towards God must be associated with knowledge. 1 Peter 2, 2 and 3. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. If you've tasted that the Lord is gracious, you'll want his word. And you'll want to have knowledge because that's how you actually understand the grace of God. You don't understand the grace of God without his word and without the knowledge from the word. And so you're not thankful towards him. You just think that you're, you're giving thanks so that you can get what you want instead of saying what the goodness of the Lord is. Next application. We have a duty to declare our thanksgiving not to just people that agree with us, not to just those who profess to believe in God, but to the masses of people. Isaiah 12, 1 through 4. And in that day you will say, Lord, I will praise you. Though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yah, the Lord, is my strength and song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And that day you will say, Praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his deeds among the peoples, make mention that his name is exalted. Isaiah's writing about what salvation looks like. After Christ comes, what does it look like to be saved? And what he says it looks like to be saved is you praise the Lord, you call upon his name, you declare his deeds among the people, you make mention 
so that his name is exalted. And so don't think that you can just be thankful towards God and be silent about it to people who are outside, to be silent about it to unbelievers. For the thanksgiving to be acceptable, we have to be willing to say it to other people, people who disagree. Israel was judged because they failed to declare God among the peoples. I would argue that the United States is being judged because we failed to declare, the church fails to declare God among the peoples. This is what the duty is when salvation comes. Are we saying it just in our holy huddle, just in our group of people? Or do we actually praise God and declare his deeds to those who are outside? God says that the reason that a nation is turned over to the things that our nation is turned over is because nobody wants to know who God is. Well, that's because the people of God haven't declared who he is to the people they have a duty to declare him to. Another application, thanksgiving towards God should be based on remembrance that it is Christ who separated us from the judgment that we deserve. Remember, it was the priest receives the bread because he's the one that sprinkled the blood, that picture of the separation from the judgment we deserve. And so whenever we come with thanksgiving towards God, the fact that they had to eat it within two days, all these things, they're all pointing to the same thing. They're all pointing to the idea that we have to remember it's Christ that brought us that peace. There's no way to the Father except through the Son. It's Christ shedding his blood that allows us to have remission from sin. Next application, God judges based on voluntary offerings. It's really important to understand this. This is Matthew 25, verses 31 through 35. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, Then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set up the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. All of those are voluntary offerings. The idea is you see somebody who's hungry and you actually feed him. And that would be the obligation, right? You see an obligation, you say, I have the duty to meet that obligation. That's the picture of the voluntary offering. And Jesus Christ says, when I come and gather all the nations together, I'm going to judge based on, I was hungry and you did not feed me. That means you get cast into hell. I was hungry and you fed me. That meant that you saw that you had a a duty to do a voluntary offering and you did the voluntary offering. So don't just think that those voluntary offerings are the secondary thing. Christ is saying, if I have saved you, if I have changed your heart, if I have given you a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone, you will do voluntary offerings. Not by your own strength, not by your own means, But God will cause you to do that so that God can judge us for what the Holy Spirit did in our heart by causing us to do voluntary offerings. So voluntary offerings, don't just, when you see a problem, you're not allowed to just say, well, that's a problem. Somebody else will deal with it. God says he'll judge you for that. God says eternally he will judge you because if you have the Holy Spirit in your heart, you will see the obligation. You will go, I have food. I'll feed this guy that's hungry. So recognize how you deal with the situations that you find yourself in. How do you deal with them? 
Do you say, I need to deal with this? I need to help this if I can. If I can resolve the problem, I'm going to resolve the problem. Or do you just walk by? God judges based on voluntary offerings. He says he can tell from that who will be saved. And obviously those who are saved are those who believe in God. But he's saying that if you believe in God, this is the response to believing in God. You actually do voluntary offerings. See your obligation and you fulfill it. Verse 6. God doesn't have to be pleased with our thanksgiving. It's so easy for us to think, oh, I thank God, so God's pleased with it. Remember Luke 18, 10 through 13. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Pharisee's thanksgiving was not acceptable to God. It was giving further judgment on him because it was done without knowledge. It was done without understanding of what God is pleased with, what, what, what you're supposed to know. Remember, we're supposed to be giving thanks continually, but we need to make certain that we're giving thanks the way God wants us to give thanks, giving thanks for the things that, one, that God wants us to give thanks for. <clears throat> we should want God to be pleasing with our, our thanksgiving, but what that requires is for us actually to understand God enough to understand and go, you know, this is pleasing to God. You know, when I was in Nigeria, every time I go to Nigeria, I'm shocked at just how blind people are, where it's the judgment of God, and they're sure it's a blessing. But it's no different here. It's no different in America. People are so sure that they're being blessed by God when they're really being cursed. The only way you can tell whether it's a cursing or a blessing, whether you should be thankful for it or whether you should repent, is from the Word of God and from reading the Word of God. Another application. Sin taints our peace with God. Sin divides that peace. It separates us from that feeling of peace. Just like in a family. That when you sin against your parents, it separates you from your parents. It creates a division that needs to be healed. And so when God, when we sin, God scourges us. And we're no longer a partaker of the blessings of peace. If you are a child of God, he scourges you. Hebrews 12, 11. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You need to deal with your sin. To think you have peace with God, to receive the blessings of peace with God, it doesn't. It creates a division until you deal with your sin. But when that spiritually unclean becomes clean, that picture in the Old Testament of, of being cleansed from you know, going and washing, and then the next day you're clean, all those things, so you can partake of the peace offering. That's all that picture, that God scourges those, that, that our sin divides us from God in such a way that as a father, if we are truly his, to have the peaceable fruit of righteousness, he needs to scourge us. To have that peace offering, to see the blessings of peace with God, he scourges us for our sin. You know, we're going to do the Lord's Supper not that long. Make sure in 1 Corinthians 11 where it's talking about scourging with sin, where he's taking the congregation in Corinth and causing some to sleep and many to get sick. 
He's doing this because they aren't dealing with their sin. Make sure you deal with your sin. And don't just partake, but deal with your sin. Because sin makes it so that we, we lose the peace offerings with God. But when he scourges us and we repent, then we once again get the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And then, very related to that last application, we should recognize that the abomination that it is in the sight of God. When we allow someone to participate in the blessings of God, being associated with the people of God, being in communion with God when they really aren't right with God. When they're really in sin, when they're dwelling in sin, when they're practicing sin, when they haven't repented of that sin. Now, frequently happens that the church has no idea. And so that's not an abomination because we don't have any idea. When God reveals it, the whole picture of the peace offering is God takes us very seriously. And if you eat it in an unholy manner, you're to be cut off. You're to be put to death in Israel. Now we just excommunicate. But we're not supposed to treat this as a light thing. We're not just supposed to treat this as somebody was saying that we're partaking of the blessings of God when they were really in rebellion to God. No, the church needs to take it seriously, and they have a duty to cut off from among themselves anybody who's, who claims that they have a peace with God and are receiving the blessings of peace when the reality is they're, they're dead in their sins and trespasses. It's very unkind when the church doesn't do discipline on those who have no testimony of being right with him. Let me close it in prayer. Oh, Lord God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you as we continue to go through Leviticus for the things that you teach us and guide us to. Lord, let us, let us understand. Let us grow in our understanding and our wisdom. And Lord, let us, even more importantly in many ways, let us grow in our obedience. Let us hear these words. Let us hear how serious you are about what Thanksgiving looks like, how serious you are in our voluntary offerings. Let's not just ignore it or look at it as the Old Testament, but instead let us recognize the same pictures are in the New Testament. For you are the God that, that always wanted thanksgiving and praise coming from a holy and righteous people. And through the power of your spirit and the new covenant, we can be a holy and righteous people. Lord, let us turn from our sin. Let us see it for what it is so we can have true blessings from you and true peace with you. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.